Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Celeste Headley. Celeste is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and the author of the books We Need to Talk and Do Nothing. You may remember Celeste from her appearance on the podcast years ago to discuss We Need to Talk, which was about how we can have better conversations with each other in a time when we're more distracted and polarized than ever. In Speaking of Race, Celeste, a self-described light-skinned Black Jew, provides the guidance we need to have honest, open, and more productive conversations about race. All right, so joining us right now is a return guest to our podcast. Um, We have Celeste Headley. Uh, We interviewed her previously about We Need to Talk, and now we are talking to her about speaking of race. And Celeste, thank you so much for joining us again. It is a pleasure to be here. Good. Um, So as I read this book, I couldn't help but think about some of the parallels between these two books, uh, We Need to Talk and Speaking of Race. And it feels like speaking of race really does continue the conversation that we need to talk started. Yeah, you know, there's one chapter in We Need to Talk that's about difficult conversations. And I and I use race as an example of a difficult conversation. Um, but for the most part, We Need to Talk is about conversation in and of itself. Great conversation, how to have one, why you should have one. And then moving forward, speaking of race is specifically about the unique challenge presented uh, in having a conversation about racial identity. It's not easy. And I, I wanted to do three things. I wanted to convince people to stop avoiding the conversation about race. Um, I wanted to explain why it's so difficult so that people could have a little bit of self-compassion as they go about this work. And then I wanted to give them very specific and practical tools so they could move forward. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of books on race out there already. Um, a lot of people coming to this book will be looking for books for first year seminars, common read programs, so they know about a lot of these other books already. Um, and you do provide a great reading list in the book. So what sets this book apart from some of those other really wonderful, amazing books about race? Yeah, which I've read and enjoyed. Um, they do tend to focus on context though and Mm -hmm. history so you know you read something like um, how to talk about race or why I'm no longer talking to white people about race Um, and and what they're doing which is very necessary work is explaining uh, some basic issues about racial identity why you don't touch black people's hair why you don't refer to Asian Americans as a model minority why it's problematic to use the term Asian American (laughs) to refer to everybody in Asia anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that's really, really important. What I wanted to do was use the best scientific and psychological knowledge we have, combine it with my own experience and the wisdom of all the people I interviewed for the book to create a a literal step-by-step guide of how you go about doing this. So it's almost like both types of books are important, but mine does something very particular and unique, which is it it literally gives you a script and the tools that you need. You know, when we look at the reasons why people don't speak up, why people don't interrupt 
um, microaggressions, whether they be a sexist joke or racist or ageist or whatever. Um, one of the major reasons for that is a lack of confidence in their ability to do so. They don't, they don't know what to say, right? They don't mm -hmm. know how to go about it. And that's what I wanted to fix. I wanted to say, okay, here's how, here's what I want you to do. And here's literally how you do it. Mm. So the title of this is speaking of race. Um, would you say that a lot of the tips in the book could apply to conversations around say gender identity, sexuality, other minorities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every conversation about identity is going to be a little bit different and have mm -hmm. its own challenges. Um, and I say that because, for example, talking about sexism is a little bit different than race because um, people are less likely to see something as inappropriate when it's like a blonde joke. Like for mm -hmm. whatever reason, sexist jokes are more acceptable than making jokes about Jews, for example. Um, however, the basic principles in and of themselves are absolutely transferable to all kinds of different conversations. You're gonna, if you just replace sexism with ageism, for example, you're gonna find the tools that you need to have that conversation as well. Uh, one of the really important points from We Need to Talk, and I have to be honest, this is something that I come back to time and time again, it's really stuck with me over the years, um, is the importance of listening. And it seems that in speaking of race, listening is more important than ever. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny that the listening component is the reason I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was my editor from HarperCollins who reached out in 2020 and said, you know, Celeste's voice could be really useful on this topic. This is when all the protests began um, after George Floyd's murder. And I didn't want to. Really? <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I said um, at the beginning, I said no, um, for a number of reasons. You know, it, it's extremely effortful and emotional work as a, for me as a writer. Uh, writing this book was tough. Um, uh, emotionally, but also just in terms of having to talk about trauma of you as experienced, you know, anytime you do that, that's, that's hard. Um, also conversations about race are difficult in that you, in someone else's eyes, you're always going to be wrong. Right. So mm -hmm. it's inevitable. I left something out or I forgot some specific nuance and someone's going to be upset. It's, you know, that's one of the things we talk about in the book is how difficult this can be. But the other part is how easy this can be, that this doesn't have to be as hard and scary as we make it out to be if we can accept that we make mistakes and that means other people will make mistakes. And a big part of this is the listening, right? Because what we're not doing is listening to one another. When, when the most common reaction, when someone says, hey, that comment you just made is racist. That joke you just made is inappropriate. One of the most common reactions is, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm not racist, or I was just kidding, right? We deny it, we run away, we change the subject. We don't listen to what someone is actually saying to us. And what they're saying to you is, you hurt my feelings <laughs> when you said that. And if you can hear people's objections, really hear them and hear them with, with respect, 
the same way, I think I make the comparison in the book as if, if you stepped on someone's toe and they said, mm-hmm. ow, that hurt, you don't turn around and say, no, it didn't. <laughs> you <laughs> but would think. For, yeah, but for some reason, we think it's okay to tell someone else what they should be emotionally upset by instead of listening, hearing them. So it's like this, this listening is your key to, to almost every challenge that presents itself to you in this conversation. You're never going to go wrong by actually listening to what the other person has to say. Now, that said, if someone is saying, and I, and I try to say this again and again in the book, I am never talking about an abusive conversation, ever. Mm-hmm. Abusive conversations are, are not meant to be tolerated. You don't have to atol- tolerate abuse or harassment or be... Uh, referred to by any term that makes you feel less than completely human. Um, That's not a conversation I want you to continue. But in every other conversation, which is the vast majority of them, listening is going to get you through it. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to um, the analogy you made of stepping on someone's toe, because I think that's really useful in talking about this. Um, You mentioned in the book how racism is rarely a conscious choice, and more often than not, it's the result of unconscious thought and bias. So when mm-hmm. we're stepping on someone's toe, usually we're not doing it on purpose. Um, right. you know, it's just accidental. Um, so how can we use that fact that racism isn't often a conscious choice? Because when someone's accused of something racist, they automatically take it as I am a terrible, horrible racist person instead of I did this racist thing. How, how can you separate those and use that to sort of reach people? So there's a couple things. Um, we need to, to defang that word racist. I mean, first of all, mm-hmm. I make the argument that you really, you don't need to use it. Um, this is not an original argument on my part. Isabel Wilkerson and Ibram Kendi have said um, much the same thing, that, that racist, the word racist has be, been so overused at this point that it's almost been you know, robbed of all its meaning. So it's okay to tell someone that a remark was inappropriate. It was hurtful to you. Um, It it is insulting. It's demeaning. It's okay to say all of those things, but you don't have to use the word racist. On the receiving end, um, let me me give you a spoiler alert here. You are racist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, we all are. And by that, I mean... Every single human being on this planet makes assumptions about other people, usually subconsciously, in a split second because of their perceived race. We know this. This has been proven by years and years of clinical study. So yes, you are racist in that you make assumptions about others based on their perceived race. So, okay. (laughs) there if you think that's the worst thing that can be said of you it's been said and you're still okay and it doesn't make you a nazi but it should um motivate you to say you know what i have all these unconscious biases lingering in my subconscious that's not great and so i want to figure out how to dig them up i need to make these unconscious biases conscious i need to make implicit bias explicit. Pull, pull it out into the sunset. See it for what it is. That's how you kill it. And the way to do that, we have to rely on each other to do that. 
You know, I tried to be as, as honest as possible in this book about mistakes that I've made. Clearly, I can't list every mistake I've ever made. <laughs> Harper Collins was not going to give me a 300,000 word book. Um, <laughs> but I tried to be honest about times when I've said things like paddy wagon, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it was an, a, a, a very kind Irish person who said to me, hey, you know what? That phrase is heavily weighted with anti-Irish bias. There was a time in our history when they used that phrase paddy wagon as a joke because the the joke was that um, both the police officer driving the police uh, van and the criminal in the back were likely to be Irish. That was the joke. And you can't see, but I'm using air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So two things had to happen there, right? both that person had to be generous enough to point this out to me, which takes some courage. And I had to take that correction uh, in the spirit in which it was intended as a correction. I had to say, this guy isn't telling me I'm uh Pol Pot. This guy is telling me I used an offensive phrase and it, you know, I need to stop using it. That's how that, that's how that, um, interaction should go. That's a healthy interaction on race. And it's the same thing in terms of digging up these unconscious biases and and dealing with this word racist. We need to rely on each other to point out our mistakes and we need to accept them with generosity and patience and gratitude. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There is a lot of nuance that goes into those types of conversations, such as the Patty Whiten conversation you just mentioned. and it feels like a lot of that nuance is lost in conversation. And I know this was something we talked about when we talked about we need to talk years ago, um, how it's hard to have nuance in conversations these days. Um, but a certain amount of ego, it feels like, can go into conversations about race, aka it's not about changing the other person's point of view so much as you need to prove that you're right and they're wrong. And I won't pretend I've never been guilty of that myself. Um, yeah. But how would you recommend we combat that both in ourselves and if we're talking with someone who is leaning into that? Yeah, this is a great question because it, you know, it was one of the first steps um, in getting through this conversation is figuring out what your goal is. Mm-hmm. What's the point of it? Why are you having this conversation about race? Um, knowing what your goal is tells you how to proceed. So, you know, there's a difference between just, not just, but there's a difference between interrupting a microaggression, which has its own um, urgent need to it, Mm -hmm. and actually having a conversation. You know, in terms of proving somebody wrong, I can just, again, relieve you of the worry over that. You're not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It, it will Thank not happen. You, I think. It, it will not happen. So let that go. Right. I mm-hmm. hope that I hope that is less pressure on people. Um, it, is. It, is, it is a little bit. I'm not going to yeah. lie. <laughs> yeah. You. If you hear someone saying ignorant things, um, you can go into that conversation knowing that you will not change their mind. And so, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. Um. The most powerful, uh, the most powerful kind of persuasion is self-persuasion. And so, what I when I'm approaching these conversations, I tried to think that my my role is to introduce a seed of dissent. 
whether that seed grows or not is up to them, but I can plant the seed, right? They will be self-persuaded or not persuaded at all. And by self-persuasion, what I mean is that you can use cognitive dissonance to your advantage. Everybody thinks they're not racist. Everyone. This is one of the things I point out in, in the book. Even David Duke, former grand wizard or whatever his title was of the KKK, says, I'm not racist. <laughs> I, don't, mm. I don't have a racist bone in my body. So everyone sure, has, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So everyone has this image of themselves that they are rational and, uh, and fair and inclusive and not racist. When you um, confront something that they've said that is inappropriate or discriminatory or demeaning, you are introducing cognitive dissonance to them right? Like, here's this thing that you have just said is racist. They have an idea in their head that they're not racist. Cognitive dissonance is extremely uncomfortable for a human being. We hate it. It's actually can be painful emotionally. And we are extremely motivated to resolve it. You can, that person can resolve that in a few ways. One of them is to say, wow, yeah, you're right. That is actually discriminatory, which means I have some things to work on. I'm not, I, you know, there's some racist thoughts and stereotypes lingering somewhere in my subconscious. That's one way to do it. Obviously, I suggest that way. But the other way to do it is, is to say, nope, that wasn't racist <laughs> or I wasn't joking. And then you dismiss it completely from your mind. And that also allows you to maintain that image of yourself as not being racist. So if you, if you think of that as you go into this conversation, like my whole goal is to introduce that seed, is to produce the possibility that may me rethink their identity, that they may get a different perspective on themselves. And then that's it. That's the, the sum total of your obligation. It, it might make you a little less fearful of these conversations. I think it would. Mm -hmm. And so many of the um, stories you talk about in the book of conversations you've had with people, um, they end yeah. with that caveat where you say, you know, you don't think you completely change their mind. They're not going to turn over and no leave, leave as soon as they walk away from you. But you think you opened them up to one specific idea or you made yeah. them reconsider something else or it's just about planting that seed. Um and it seems like with, you know, today's age of instant gratification, we can't appreciate that kind of gradual incremental change. Um, but do you think that kind of change is key in changing both people and larger systems? So when was the last time you changed your mind about something important? Not like, hey, nachos are actually pretty good, but like an issue. Hmm. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure, to be honest. Okay. Um, we rarely do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, I figured it was going there. <laughs> we, we rarely do it. And, and when it does happen, it's so incremental. It's like that drip of water that over centuries carves a hole in a, in a, in a stone. Mm -hmm. It's so incremental. It so, takes so long that sometimes we don't even realize it. I mean, I can remember when um, I got out of college. So I was a Republican as a young person. 
the first president I voted for was George H.W. Bush. My parents were Republicans. My whole family were Republican. And I remember thinking I'd, I'd, I'd graduated from back my uh, undergraduate school and I was at a party and they started talking about the death penalty and I spoke up to give my opinion and all of a sudden realized, holy cow, at some point I changed my mind on the death penalty. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. believe, I don't agree with the death penalty anymore. When did that happen? The, you know, keeping that in mind about myself, how rarely and how sort of subtly it's been, there hasn't been some, you know, Buddha under the Bodhi tree enlightenment moment. You know, there was no light coming down and pouring down upon me on the road to Damascus. There was never a huge aha moment. It just happened over time. And Mm -hmm. and that's how we have to allow other people that same grace and that same patience and understand that as much time as it takes us to change our opinions, that's also how long it takes others. Mm -hmm. And so as far as changing your mind, as far as the death penalty, you, like you said, you can't point to a specific moment that you change your mind, but it had to have been these small little moments over the years. So is it fair to say that your conversation with someone about race might be one of those small moments that ultimately leads to a larger change? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That little seed is not growing an oak. It's, it's growing a, a, a vine that will then join with other vines and eventually come become kudzu and cover the entire southern United States. No, I'm kidding. It, it's, <laughs> it's not one massive change. Again, usually. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are examples of, you know, eureka moments, but they're, they're rare. Most of the time, it's just little tiny things. I mean, going back to my own example, you know, after voting for George H.W. Bush, the very next presidential election, I voted for uh, Bill Clinton. And I cannot tell you how that change came about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. But it did happen. So you said in our last interview that um, young people were really responding to We Need to Talk and to the TED Talk that the book was based off of. And that gave you hope. Yeah. How do you hope that young people respond to speaking of race? Again, that's a really good question because so often people think that the next generation is going to be the end of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and history has proven again and again that you can't age out of racism. <laughs> uh, it, it, that just doesn't happen. We all inherit the biases of our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents, our teachers. You know, we, we, we drink in sexism by watching the Brady Bunch. Um, and so young people are just as prone to the same unconscious biases that we were growing up, that I was growing up. I don't mean to, you know, blanket, not include you among young people, Michael. <laughs> Um, but I hope that young people can get, this means they can get started early Mm -hmm. in, in removing some of the fear of this conversation, understanding that if you take out this pressure to prove somebody wrong or to change their mind, that means that the three minute conversation with the guy behind you in the coffee shop is just as valuable as the 30 minute conversation with some dude at a party you go to. They, they are both valuable and they're both worth it. And 
it's not a doesn't have to be a huge risk. Once you learn how to get through this conversation in a productive way, once you can honestly sort of not only confront your fears, but know what to expect. That's one of the things I tried to be very um, thorough about is saying, look, this may happen. This person may become defensive. Here's how you recognize that they're becoming defensive. And here's what you do. Um, There's also a chapter on what do you do if you screwed up? So if your fear is of saying the wrong thing, it's okay. (laughs) You can come (laughs) back from that. It's funny. I I just posted, I found over the course of my research, I somehow stumbled on this extremely old picture of the actor Ryan Reynolds, in which he has Mm. just the most disastrous haircut you've ever had in your (laughs) life. It's horrible. And I... I posted it by saying, look, if you can come back from this, you can come back from anything. And I'll say that to people in this conversation about race. Look, people have come back from worse. Whatever your mistake is, we're, again, we're talking about conversations. We're not talking about a policymaker passing racist legislation or a CEO um, failing to promote, hire and promote people of color. We're talking about conversations. You can come back from it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so Celeste, one more question I have for you. Uh, yeah. We normally ask our guests who their favorite teacher was, but since you are a returning guest, we've already asked you that. So I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. What teacher, who has taught you the most about how to have these difficult conversations around race? Whether it's someone in your life, someone who's writing or speaking has inspired you, I'll leave that open-ended for you. Uh, that's tough, as I imagine this is for anybody. Um, I could probably give you one of 50 answers and uh, they would all be correct. Um, I think that probably one of the best teachers for me has been Doug Mitchell, who runs the Next Generation Project for NPR. The Next Generation Project is, uh, the whole goal of it is to train Uh, young journalists, journalists and editors and writers in um, in our industry. And it really focuses on underrepresented groups. Um, I think right now at this moment that we're speaking, he has a group of five indigenous um, students who are in the project. And it's not so much what Doug told me that that, uh, gave me the most value. It was that he kept inviting me back to be either a mentor or a managing editor of that project. So I've been working with that project for like 20 years and simply having to, not having to, simply having the pleasure and the the opportunity of interacting with young people and journalists from every possible background, every possible gender identity, every possible sexual identity, every possible demographic in the country, having that opportunity and learning that sometimes you have to change what you say because um, that's not the way their culture communicates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not that that doesn't have the same meaning for someone from their background as it does to you in your background you know learning how to to code switch has been incredibly powerful to me 
Code switching, of course, is, is changing your language and the way you speak according to who your audience is, who you're speaking to. People of color have to do it all the time. Um, but we all do code switching. I am sure that you speak differently when you're at home um, with a bunch of friends than you do when you're at work speaking to your boss. Mm -hmm. That's that's code switching. And I and having to do it often is really good for you. Really good for you. And just to, to wrap it up, you know, when we talk about some of these um, controversies over so-called cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times this is just about code switching, right? Like if a comedian is complaining about not being able to say something because someone will get offended, what I have learned through all my years of working with all these different people from all these diverse and wonderful backgrounds is that that same comedian doesn't seem to, to complain when the Tonight Show books them, but says, don't use swear words. Hmm. Um. <laughs> It's just code switching. We are learning to, to, to interact with other human beings in a way that doesn't hurt other people. And that's okay. Mm. That is very insightful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for a wonderful conversation yet again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. You know, um, our We Need to Talk interview is our most played episode of all time on the podcast. Wow, that's so, great. So we'll, we'll see if we can get this one up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. The more people that read it, not only is it good for sales, but the more people that read it, I hope that means the more people that are willing to get out there and, and talk about this stuff. Right. Exactly. Good for sales. Good for the world at large. Exactly. Everybody wins. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks, Celeste. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.